0: Take your business further at tmobile.com/slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC.
1: pushkin this is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show Today, I'm joined by author Jennifer Egan. Egan won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011 for her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad. If you haven't read it, it contains 13 distinct but interconnected stories, which are tied together like a Robert Altman film. Her latest is a kind of sibling novel to that book called The Candy House. It's now available to purchase wherever you do your reading. The book opens on tech giant Bix Boughton, who soon goes on to create something called Own Your Unconscious. In the novel, this new fangled technology allows one to access every memory they've ever had with the potential of gaining access to the memories of others. As you'll hear, Egan and I unpack this concept early on in our talk, but we also expand the conversation with Egan's own memories oscillating between her work on the page and her life outside of it. As she says in this episode, chronology is not an organizing principle of this new book. And so, in keeping with the spirit of her writing, neither is this podcast. Instead, we unpack her relationship to time, to her younger self, to her early work, and to her late brother, Graham, for whom I must offer a warning. In 2016, He passed away at age 47 after a long and courageous struggle with schizophrenia. We discuss his life and death in this episode. We also contend with his impact on Egan's work, both in his much too brief time here and in the aftermath of his passing. It's a heavy, painful part of Egan's story, but one that I think is essential in understanding who she is today. And so, with that, here is author Jennifer Egan. Jennifer Egan, thanks for being here. My pleasure. You have this excellent new book out. It's called The Candy House. It is a spiritual sibling to A Visit from the Goon Squad, which was published in 2010. As for how this book came to be, I I wanted to start here. You've said in the past, my actual portal into starting anything is always time and place. It's extremely visceral because time and place are even more fundamental than character. I need to feel something in my body. When and where are we? What did you feel in your body that eventually brought you to the page?
2: Well, even by the time I was on my book tour for A Visit from the Goon Squad, I was actually already working on a chapter of The Candy House. And it's one of the more extreme chapters structurally. It's the one that was written originally for Twitter at 140 characters. And it's about a female civilian spy who was trying to infiltrate plotters against America and learn their secrets, which she records through equipment that's in her eyes and her ears. And the time and place element of that worked sort of the way it often does for me, which is that I had a lot of other ideas that really interested me and had for a while. One was writing for Twitter, which seemed like a really interesting possibility as a storytelling device. And another was writing a story in the form of a list, which has always interested me because lists are kind of inadvertent story vehicles.
1: You're a big list maker, right?
2: I'm a huge list maker. I just counted, well, it's, I didn't count. I looked at the number of lists on my iPhone. And it's over 800. <laughs> Most of them, I should just say, are are defunct or, you know, very um, dormant, let's say. For
1: the record, they're defunct, they're dormant.
2: Yeah. But then they become interesting artifacts, and that's, in a way, when lists are at their best, in my opinion. But anyway, so I was interested in writing about lists. I was interested in taking a character I had used in a more naturalistic setting and trying to import that person into a more stylized form of storytelling. So all of these ideas were in my head. And they all converged with a sense of the Mediterranean, a kind of archetypal, almost mythological vibe. And that was really where it started, was just this sense of list-like bulletins from a spy in that environment. And I just started writing.
1: As for the when and where of this book, for those who haven't read it yet, how do you set the scene?
2: When is a tricky question when it comes to this book because chronology is not an organizing principle. It moves all over the place in terms of the time frame.
1: This is often true for you.
2: Yes. This is true also in A Visit from the Goon Squad. With A Visit from the Goon Squad, I actually thought it would be chronological when I was writing it. I thought it would go backwards. But when I read the chapters in that order, I found that it was very flat and that what was a much better organizing principle was curiosity. So I already knew that The Candy House would also be a chronological. But for each of the pieces in it, we are in a specific time and place. And my portal into those individual worlds, and that's really how I thought of them when I was working on The Candy House, my portal in is that location in time and space. And in the case of The Candy House, the time span ranges from 1965 to 2035. So it's a huge span of time that we're covering, but not in order.
1: It's 1965 to 2035. The opening chapter focuses on Bix Boughton, who appears briefly in Goon Squad and who predicted the impact of social media in that book. How do you explain the sort of phenomenon of him and... and The invention he goes on creating that is really a through line throughout this book.
2: When I wrote about Bix in Goon Squad, where, as you say, he appears very briefly, he predicts in his brief appearance the impact of social media. And that's happening in 1993 when he makes those predictions. And the prediction basically is everyone we've lost will find or they'll find us. When we meet Bix in the candy house, he has invented social media. He has become a tech icon, you know, a guy everyone knows by his first name,
1: sort of like a Mark Zuckerberg Steve Jobs type
2: exactly. And that's all happened. He's phenomenally wealthy. He's monetized the internet. But he is feeling stuck and actually terrified because he can't find a new idea, a new vision. And he's only 41 years old. He feels like he's exhausted the old one and he has to find something new. He can't. So he goes in disguise because he's so famous, he can't really be a normal person anymore. He goes in disguise to a discussion group of academics at Columbia University. And his goal is just to sort of re enter that student-like frame of mind, which he sees as the source of his original ideas and his original insights. And at that discussion group, he hears something that leads him to his next big invention, which, as you say, forms the through line of the book. And that invention is called Own Your Unconscious, which allows people to externalize their consciousnesses in full, meaning every memory and perception they've ever had starting at the moment of their birth, to a beautiful cube for their own perusal and protection. It becomes a hedge against traumatic brain injuries, dementia. There are lots of other reasons you might want to do this. And there's also another thing you can do, which is share that consciousness in whole or in part to a collective in exchange for gaining access to that collective. And the analogy here would be like DNA information sharing.
1: From like a ancestry.com kind of thing.
2: Exactly. You have to give to get. If you want to find out if you have relatives, you also have to offer up your results. So, for example, I've never had my DNA analyzed. But that doesn't matter. Enough people in North America have done this that we are all findable and represented in the data that already exists in that collective database. So the idea is even if you have not uploaded your consciousness, you are findable in that collective. And that leads to a resistance, very naturally, which in the Candy House is a group of people known as the eluders, who are so horrified and so alienated by their representation in this collective that they shed their identities and basically leave them behind to the collective and take on new identities and live different lives as new people.
1: The idea of participating in a shared consciousness, it would essentially eliminate all privacy. I mean, like you said, it would give people access to your inner thoughts. It would also in turn give you access to other people's most inner thoughts. The book has been described as imagining a world that is moments away. And if something like this is moments away, do you believe people would participate in a shared consciousness because maybe now more than ever, we're searching for connection?
2: I think that the way in which it feels moments away is the way in which it's already here, because I think the reason this feels familiar is that the Internet, to some degree, is already doing this. You know, we can know so much more about everything in the world, but certainly about what other people are thinking than we ever could before just by being online. The truth of the matter is we don't understand the brain enough to do anything like this anytime soon and probably ever. And what would it even mean? What does it really mean to view someone's consciousness? But the question of whether people would participate, I have a feeling that they would. I even feel like I might participate.
1: You, Jennifer Egan, would?
2: Well, first of all, I would certainly want to externalize my consciousness because I am a curious person. My whole job is to indulge my curiosity about the inner lives of other people. And in order to do that, I rely very heavily on my own unconscious. The ideas that I have as a conscious person are not good enough to write fiction that would meet my standards. So my whole methodology is geared toward accessing the stuff that I can't consciously think of. And I have all kinds of ways of doing that. I write fiction by hand, I try to write without stopping. I don't read over what I'm writing. It's all about putting aside the analytical part of my brain and getting at something deeper. I'm a big believer in the fact that we all know much more than we realize that we know.
1: When you're writing long form, what happens to you in that process?
2: I think the closest thing I could liken it to is probably improvisation, either musical or theatrical, although I say that having never done either. (laughs) But I'm starting with a time and a place, and I'm looking to fall into a line of action or narrative that feels alive and then keep pushing in that direction. The goal is just to generate a lot of material so that I can choose among that and pick the best and then try to find its organic shape and through endless revision Fulfill whatever that thing seems like it could be. But the bottom line of what I'm looking to be is surprised.
1: Surprised by yourself?
2: Surprised by whatever improvisationally happens. It feels a little like it's not me in control of it, but it can feel kind of transcendent in moments to feel like things are happening on the page that I don't anticipate and am delighted by. Those are great moments that I remember forever. The norm is that I feel like, ugh, this is terrible. I just want to be done. When will I be done writing these five pages or whatever it is I'm trying to do?
1: Once you do get it onto the page, at least when it comes to the pages of this book, there is this recurring conversation around authenticity. How are you thinking about that? both in this book and in this moment that we're in?
2: I think of authenticity at this point as a kind of construct that is the natural consequence of mediation. And this thinking is not original. A book that had a huge impact on me that I first read years and years ago is called The Image by Daniel Boorstin. It was published in 1961, so before mass media as we know it, before the Vietnam War was televised. Borston talks about the fact that mediated experience feels fake <laughs> it feels artificial because it is to a large extent people are creating events for consumption and they're being presented often as natural events and that artificiality is something that the viewer can detect and it leads to a natural craving for authenticity as a as an antidote to that artificiality mass media tries to satisfy that craving by providing us with further mediation that feels more authentic, often through ever greater feats of artificiality. And this equation, if you will, explains so much of what has happened in our mass media, I think right to the present. I mean, certainly reality TV, but all the way to streaming and TikTok videos. The lust, the hunger for authenticity is so deep. And the only way the media can fulfill that hunger is to do its thing and try to give us mediated experience that feels unmediated.
1: This dialogue around authenticity, it's one you first explored in your book Look at Me in the Late 90s. The protagonist of that novel, Charlotte Swenson makes an appearance in this new book even then you were having this early dialogue around what you would call performative culture. How have you been thinking about this In the intervening 20 years between that book I mentioned and The Candy House.
2: As a writer, I'm endlessly fascinated by these interactions between technology and inner life. And I'm always asking the question of whether technology has changed who we are to ourselves. And the fact that I was asking it in a way suggests that I thought the answer must be yes. Technology has changed who we are to ourselves. Look at Me actually tells exactly the opposite story, which is kind of fascinating. And another reason I love writing fiction, because it's really about asking questions, not answering them. And sometimes whatever answer the book gives is the opposite of the one I thought that I believed.
1: When you first started it.
2: Exactly. I do feel a lot of concern just as a human being about where all of this performance is leading us. In a way, it's hard to express those worries without sounding really dull, because a lot of people have said these things and it's easy to just tune them out as generational and probably legitimate. You know, I'm a person with kids in their late teens, early 20s. I'm worried about the world that they're going to live in. And I'm someone who didn't grow up with any of this technology. So it's very easy to just say, "Ugh, it's a baby boomer whining. But the truth is, I do think that it's very hard to resist a kind of cultural narcissism if we are all expected to to some degree perform as professional and personal obligation. I mean, you know, I'm publishing a book and my publisher said to me this time it would really be good if you would be on Instagram, which I had never done. You know, this is something that everyone is encouraged to do and I think everyone feels it as a bit of an obligation, the need to represent our experience as a media product creates a kind of obligation and even can ultimately impact the way we experience it in the first
1: place. Where do you think that need comes from?
2: That's a good question. I mean, you mentioned earlier the need to connect. You know, it's a fact of human life that we cannot escape our solitude. We are locked inside our own minds. We never really will know what it's like to be another person, and we can never fully describe our own inner lives to other people. And so that wish to connect, which you see everywhere online, which is so much of what brings people online and certainly brings people to social media, I think is really natural and really human. So that's one part of the equation. But then there are other parts. The need to represent is coming from the other side. That's much more media-driven. That's more about a requirement to perform within a certain context. You know, we have social life. We present ourselves to each other. We have to interact. And yet those interactions often not only don't feel like an expression of who we really are deeply, but often can feel almost like they're in diametric contradiction to it. So there's this tension between our isolated internal selves and the social selves that we have to present. But I think that in some ways those two opposing needs or impulses become really exaggerated in the context of online existence, let's say, or mediated existence. So it just, the whole equation becomes very complicated.
1: I think you did a good job. <laughs>
2: I'm not sure.
1: I understood 80%.
2: <laughs> that was probably the only percent that made sense.
1: <laughs> the other 20% will edit it out. Oh, good. So okay. it's going to be perfect. You and I seem to have this kinship in self-editing, I'm listening for the tape and you're rewriting for the tape. This desire to self-edit, do you think it's partly why you're drawn to writing, where you can control the terms and conditions?
2: Maybe so, but I think it also is a measure of how much ideas live in language. And so the feeling of getting it right feels more important than just, oh, I found the right words to say that thing. I think finding the right words almost feels like it holds the promise of actually crystallizing the thought in a way that's really valuable. I think that all of that probably is why I write, because I for sure feel that I'm just smarter and a clearer thinker generally in writing than I am In person. I mean, I feel like I'm somehow most myself if I actually have a pen in my hand and I'm just writing things down.
1: Well, can we go to where this belief in writing began, at least as I understand it? You're 18 years old, having just finished high school in San Francisco. Before heading to the University of Pennsylvania, you decide to take a gap year. At that time, you had never been to Europe. And so to pay for the trip, You leave your job at a Hate Street coffee shop and take a few modeling gigs doing catalog work in San Francisco and Tokyo. Did I get this right so far?
2: Yeah, you've done your homework.
1: Okay. Eventually, you do finally make your way to Europe. What happens to you upon landing in London?
2: It was an incredible trip because I was so. Awed by everything that happened to me, starting with English accents, which I couldn't even believe were real. That was my level of naivete and freshness. And I found right from the beginning that as I had adventures, writing seemed to be an integral part of the experience. I was always writing in a journal that I had. But I also almost immediately began having trouble. I started feeling really anxious. We have terms to talk about what was happening to me on that trip now that I was not familiar with at the time. And I think if I had had the language to understand what was happening to me, I would have had a much easier time. What was happening to me in our current language was I was having anxiety attacks that actually became full-blown panic attacks.
1: And where did those come from?
2: I mean, there were various underlying issues, like my mother and stepfather had separated, so I felt a little like I was running away from my life. I was a very anxious person. One thing that contributed to my terror was that I worried I was having drug flashbacks and that maybe I had actually destroyed my brain.
1: Because of drugs you had done in high school?
2: Yeah, There was a book that we all read called Go Ask Alice, which turned out to be fiction, but it was presented as the diary of a young girl who loses her mind to drugs. I'm sure this was probably fiction written by a worried mom (laughs) Um, because it, it scared the hell out of everyone. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm like Alice.
1: That's an ingenious concept. It
2: was a very effective concept. So I called these panic attacks the terror And I wrote while I was having them. What I found over time was that whether I was in extremis with misery or with happiness, writing seemed to be part of the equation and actually help me define whatever experience I was having. So the trip ended in what felt like abject failure. I had to go home early, and I had my hard-won money that I had saved so carefully— I had to spend a gigantic quantity to buy a last-minute plane ticket back from Rome at that point because I just couldn't go on. So I thought, this is a disaster. I'm going to end up in institutions. I really thought that.
1: Flying back home, that's what you were thinking.
2: Yeah. I just felt really fragile, and my hold on normal life is probably what I would have called it, felt really tenuous.
1: How did that fragility manifest itself?
2: You know, that's a hard question to answer because I think I functioned pretty normally and one thing I've really learned about myself over time is that I can be feeling really unstable and still present in a fairly typical way, which is a really helpful quality I have to say.
1: I uh I can relate to that. Let's let's leave it there. I I relate to that profoundly.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a a useful thing to realize that, you know, people can't see what we're thinking. They can only see what we're doing. I've learned over time that I can be feeling really endangered even by my relationship to the world, but I can just sort of bluff my way through it until I start to feel better.
1: So you bluffed your way through that first year at the University of Pennsylvania.
2: To some degree. I mean, I I was doing work and making friends, and those are still a lot of my closest friends. So what was happening to me was real. I was pretending to be normal, as I would have put it, but I was having real experiences. And then what I was afraid would fall away were those experiences. What actually fell away was the feeling of pretending.
1: Do you know when that feeling fell away?
2: I think it was toward the end of that freshman year. First of all, university is a very safe environment compared to where I was before that, flailing around on my own in Europe with a backpack. I had structure around me and actually felt much more supported in that environment. And I just started to enjoy myself, I guess, and and lost track of this terrified vision of, of my own demise.
1: It just sort of faded away.
2: I think we humans can trick ourselves into Really extreme visions and distortions. And I'm still prey to that sometimes.
1: Both good and bad. Exactly. It's in this period at college that you really start to write more and more. And you have this professor, Diana Cavallo, who said of you at that age from the start, Jennifer's work was extremely vivid and very visual. She honed her craft, and that's what stood out about her. She was willing to do it until it was right. Do you believe that description?
2: I do feel very connected to my younger self. I've always seen myself as someone who was striving, trying so hard that the effort is, I think, one of the defining (laughs) characteristics of my approach to life. And so I think that that's very much how I saw myself then. I was always trying.
1: You say it almost begrudgingly.
2: When I think back on my undergraduate years, one thing I really remember was how much I loved writing academic papers and how much faith I had every time I undertook any sort of writing assignment that it had the power to somehow change everything. So, when I think about my kind of highs as an undergraduate, it was that secret joy of knowing that I sort of had it. I had my argument. Sometimes I did feel a sense of great power in that role. Writing, you know, who knows what, an essay about Milton, but just the joy that I took in writing. And there was no way to explain it to anyone. And it also didn't really last, because there was always a kind of counterpoint between that and the really visceral self-doubt. And of course, the other side of the coin of loving to write and feeling empowered by it is the feeling of not being able to do it well enough, which is a terrible feeling. But that secret joy of doing it well was really a discovery.
1: So as a young person, you're talking about having this great power while writing papers on Milton. In that period in college, and eventually you go to grad school in Cambridge, how are you thinking about the woman you want to become?
2: I definitely knew that I did not want to be part of sort of what I would call kind of an old-fashioned marriage, which my mother and stepfather had for a while. My mother actually went back to work um, when I was in high school and opened an art gallery and had a whole career doing that. You know, my stepfather, my first stepfather, was a very charismatic guy, and their lives revolved a lot around his needs, wishes, professional desires, and, and personality. I grew up for sure thinking I'm not going to be in someone's orbit like that ever. It wasn't that I thought I have to be the charismatic center of attention, but I certainly thought I'm not going to just enable a charismatic center of attention. I want to do my own thing, whatever that may be, even if it's just a quiet kind of recessed thing, even if it's just writing papers on Milton, which felt like heaven. Uh, So I think that is one thing I knew very clearly, that I wanted autonomy as a woman and not to be in someone's shadow.
1: Come the fall of 1987, you moved to New York City, living in a dingy room in an Upper West Side apartment, I think sleeping on a foam couch for a bed. Did you find that autonomy there?
2: Yes, although there were a lot of surprises about moving to New York, which I was not anticipating. I mean, one was just how incredibly expensive it was. I had this idea that being a temp would be incredibly lucrative It wasn't really because New York was just crazily, it felt like it was, it cost money to breathe when I got there.
1: You thought New York was going to be inexpensive?
2: Only someone who had never really spent much time there could think that, right?
1: Or someone from San Francisco.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And so there was a lot of discomfort about that early period in New York, partly because I had written a dreadful novel that I hoped would be great and no one liked it. I wasn't even back to square one. I was behind that because I had been writing better in college than I was writing two years later.
1: You had regressed.
2: I had regressed and also my friends from college had all started jobs and were or or were in grad school and were 2 years further along in their lives where as in a way I had taken a kind of hiatus I was the spazzy needy newcomer who was sort of flailing around and not necessarily someone anyone wanted to spend a lot of time with
1: Is that really how you saw yourself?
2: I think that's a pretty accurate description of what I was like at that point.
1: Spazzy and needy.
2: A little. Yeah. And also, I had no support system in New York. I had no family there or even on the East Coast. But that being said, I was forging my own way. My mother was very much in my corner, but my father was extremely skeptical of what I was doing. You know, he had—his father was a cop and he had become a lawyer. And I think in his mind that I was his oldest child— And I think he felt anxiety that I was sort of slipping back. And I felt that anxiety, of course. So there were lots of reasons to walk away, but I never even considered it. And that has to be due to some sense that I was making progress on something. And maybe that something was being an autonomous adult and forming my own way of living.
1: Maybe that something was also the part-time jobs you had at the time.
2: Yes. Well, the most interesting was certainly being a private secretary to a countess, uh, although she was American-born, but she had lived in Spain. She had been a spy. She was a very difficult personality who only just passed away. So she lived until she was almost 100.
1: This was Aileen?
2: Aileen, the Countess of Romanones, who was pretty famous in the 80s and I guess early 90s for a series of books that she wrote, taking certain liberties with the truth, as she was the first to admit, about her experience as a spy with the OSS originally during World War II and then afterward for the CIA. So she was a real personality. What does that mean? Well, she was just a really extreme lady. She was colorful, well-spoken, but prone to anger, very little self-control in that way sometimes. She could be really abusive, verbally abusive
1: to do me. You, do you still have a insult rattling around in your head?
2: Yeah, she used to call me low-class. I mean, by her standards, I was in the sense that she had spent her adult life in among the Spanish aristocracy.
1: (laughs) By her standards, we all were.
2: Yeah, it's true. She claimed that I ate too much garlic. Well, from her point of view, any garlic was too much. She called it a low class thing. But the bottom line is she paid me enough to live on. And I only worked from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. And in New York City, that was a big deal. So I owe her a lot. She was actually very fond of me. And and the fact that she was still so abusive, it really tells you what it would have been like if she hadn't been fond of me. But she was wild. She was very right-wing, friendly with people like Malcolm Forbes. She was very friendly with the Reagans. Ronald Reagan was the president then. Nancy Reagan was a close friend of hers. She was around a lot. This was just a slice of New York life that I never would have glimpsed.
1: Do you start to find your voice as a writer around that time?
2: Yes. I was taking a writing class with someone named Philip Schultz, who was actually a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet now and was teaching out of his living room then. And I started bringing in work, which was really weak.
1: What did weak writing look like to you?
2: Weak writing meant that there was no emotional force to it. There was no connection. It's what I would now call having no voice and being a little dead. And I have a writing group to this day that I bring work into all the time. And part of what I'm trying to find out is just exactly that. Is it alive? And there was no life in what I was doing in in those early months in New York. But trial and error is an amazing teacher. And hearing what was wrong and also hearing little moments that were right— helped me to reconnect with that part of myself that was able to generate material that actually did have some life to it. We'll be right back after a quick break.
3: Hello, hello, Malcolm Grabwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans have this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. Can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized. For your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders, and an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at t-mobile.com/unconventional awards. That's T-mobile.com/unconventional Awards. See you there.
4: Small business owners, this one's for you. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Company.
2: L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start.
3: L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com.
1: Eventually, you do find that footing we're talking about. You rediscover the voice that maybe you first found in college. It's around this time in New York that you start to receive calls from your younger brother, Graham. Do you remember what those calls were like? He was in college at the time.
2: He had struggled in certain ways for a while, struggled academically. He had changed high schools midway through. You know, my mother and my first stepfather had divorced when I was 18 or separated. And Graham would have been about 11, 12 then. And so Basically, at the same time that I left home, this marriage collapsed, and I think all of that was really hard for him. But it was when he was in college that I started to hear certain things that seemed familiar to me, actually, from my abnormal psych class, which I had taken in college. Little elements of paranoia or megalomania. There was a moment, I remember, when he said he thought he could read people's thoughts So he was beginning to present what became very severe mental illness.
1: How did you first respond to something like that?
2: I couldn't see it, even though I had all the tools to see it. He was such a magnetic person, so impressive, incredibly handsome and athletic, well-spoken, kind, that it was really hard to believe that he could be seriously mentally ill. And even though he was in therapy, and you have to wonder why these therapists didn't get the picture, I didn't know what I was seeing. That's the bottom line.
1: You described him as deeply funny, and you two every now and then would bat around this idea of writing a script together, right?
2: Yeah. We wanted to write a script about him, Uh, and it would be about the crazy and often hilarious things that his mental illness caused to happen it was wonderful to laugh about that stuff but it was almost like you know a party that everyone's having a good time at but in the end we all have to go home to different places and where i got to go was you know my life and where he had to go was back to his solitude and isolation with this illness which presented him with voices that seemed very real that were telling him things that weren't true. And that was a really difficult set of circumstances to live with.
1: That image of the party is really, uh, it's like something I would find in one of your books.
2: I just thought of it this moment, actually. i never thought of that before. But it, it gets back to that thing we were talking about, which is just the deep isolation in the end that we all live with. And I've never felt more frustrated with that boundary, ever than I did with him because I loved him so much and I wanted so much to somehow pull him out of whatever little opening it was that we could reach each other through. If I could have just rescued him from that. But there was no way to do it. He hung in there for a long time. But in the end, he got really tired and I do not
1: blame him. I know Throughout your career, you have thoroughly, repeatedly refuted any comparison between the people in your life and the characters in your book. But I have to say, I can't shake the character of Moose and look at me. And then, more recently, this scene in Candy House on page 68 with Miles in the hot air balloon. When it comes to Graham, does he sort of remain in the work?
2: I probably should refine my claim that I don't use people I know and add the word knowingly. (laughs) Because to be fair, you know, of course, what else do I have to work with? On some level, I am using the stuff of my life and extrapolating away from it as much as I can, partly to give myself the pleasure of feeling like I'm in another realm that's all new but there are a lot of imperilled brothers in my work. I really see that. And moose remains my favorite character that I've ever written about, and I'm sure that that's partly because of Graham, who, of course, was alive and and intermittently well in the time that I was writing about Moose. You know, I think I felt the the peril to him always. I do feel that affection for moose. I think you're you're quite right. You know, he's there always. He's certainly always in me and in my thoughts, not just unconsciously, but consciously.
1: Well, let's go to the work. This is page 68 of The Candy House. Miles, a once-esteemed lawyer in Chicago, whose life has gone astray for a variety of reasons, finds himself up on a hot air balloon.
2: By the time the sun nudged at the mountaintop, we were high above the desert. It felt strange to be in the open air at such a height, the intermittent hum from the balloon's burner wasn't like an engine noise, and I could hear birdsong from below. As I drank from my water bottle, the sun's upper edge cleared the mountain and dropped its light on the world below. And In that instant, a skein of brilliant color snapped into view, Sasha's sculpture. From the ground, it had seemed a hodgepodge, but from my new height, it acquired structure and logic— like random scribbles aligning into prose. Skipping lines of color raced through the desert, skittering and twisting, backtracking, thickening, then scattering almost away, a skylarking utterance of surpassing joy that rushed up from the land and encompassed me. Where the sculpture gave way, the desert looked empty. Tears broke in my eyes, and I pulled down the bill of my cap. Look, I said to Drew, look what she did. Drew, too, appeared spellbound. I can't believe I've never seen this at sunrise, he said. As I gazed down, reading Sasha's buoyant testimony, my mind broke free like our hot air balloon lifting away from the earth. From my new height, I saw my life with brute simplicity, my overweening pride and contempt, and then my failure, so much failure, failure everywhere I looked." I had tried, Lord, I had tried, but it wasn't enough. It was nothing. My children were grown and whole and didn't need me, were perplexed by me, I often felt. I was alone, had been ebbing away for years in a purgatory that seemed from this height more dire than death. There was nothing to go back to. Tears muddled my vision, blurring Sasha's sculpture. Each time I blinked, its colors winked back at me in code, here. Now, enough, go. I seized one of the braided steel cables and hoisted myself over the basket's edge, a mix of cold and warm air splashing around my dangling legs. For a fraction of a second, I balanced there, my mind vacant with hypnotic purpose. Then I let go. There was a brief, horrifying drop, my body beginning to accelerate, and then something, the crook of an arm, it seemed, caught me under the chin and clamped my head against the side of the basket. I cried out, choking and flailing from my neck. Gravity gulped at my legs and seemed about to tear my body from my head when I felt whoever was holding me begin to tip out of the basket. Then a metal hook or brace caught me under my left armpit and jerked me up and over, flipping me backward into the basket where I smashed head first on the bottom." My skull plate juddered, and a rush of metal singed my mouth and nose and eyes. I blinked through a strobe of stars and saw Drew leaning over me, panting like a madman. He hit the side of my face and sat down hard on my chest. No, you don't, you fucker. He breathed and hit me again. No, you don't. Get off him, the pilot yelled, yanking at Drew. He's passing out. Let him. You saved his life, and now you're going to kill him?
1: How does that sit with you?
2: Well, I was seeing a few things I wouldn't mind editing if I had another crack at it.
1: (laughs) I knew that was coming.
2: (laughs) I guess what is striking to me reading it now is my urge to nudge it toward humor is always there. And so that final moment where the, the balloon guy is like, Why you, you, almost, you almost got killed trying to save this guy, but now you're basically trying to kill him. That urge in me to find the humor is always present. And that's Graham too. Like he was, that was him. You know, the, the willingness to laugh about the most extreme and even, you know, deeply painful things was something that we shared.
1: Something you laughed about, to go back a second. In 2006, you published a book called The Keep. But when you first started writing it, you had a whole lot of trouble because you couldn't find the right voice for the book. And when you finally cracked it, you explained how you did it to Graham. And you had this conversation about voices that feels both human and funny in the way that you're describing.
2: Well, yes, because what happened as I was struggling to find the voice for this book. And that often happens to me because my books are so different from each other that I carry a little bit of a hangover from the previous book, which is often very ill-suited to whatever the new material is. So I was trying to write a gothic novel or just get into a gothic vibe, let's say. And the voice I was using was ill-suited to that. It was kind of ironic and seemed to be looking down on the material And there came a moment where I just wrote, I'm trying to write a novel, which was just an expression of what I was doing. It was just me basically interjecting my frustration into the writing itself. But the minute I wrote it, I suddenly realized that what I had been missing was that my narrator was another character in the story and that there was actually a story within a story which is a very gothic trope. So I I felt the rightness of it before I even quite knew what all of that meant. And it turned out that the I is a prisoner working on the gothic story in a prison writing class. And that insight was just critical to the whole thing. So when I told my brother this, he said, I can't believe it. You know, you hear voices and you're making a living from it. I hear voices and I, I, you know, I can't function. (laughs) And it was, you know, it was a pretty apt comment because the truth is he did hear voices. That was an aspect of his psychosis were auditory hallucinations, and they made it very hard to function. But my writing process also relies on a kind of hearing. Okay, but the word hearing is a little deceptive there because I don't actually hear them as— Voices in my head. For him, it was as if a radio was playing inside his head, and that was a nightmare. But this is a difference of degrees in a way. And I think that's the important thing that all of us have come to understand better about mental illness that often this is just a matter of degree. And, you know, to see someone with psychosis as dangerous and other is really not only not fair, but actually not true, because it is so close to just being a regular person, but with a few degrees of difference.
1: The degrees of difference, you know, he passes away in 2016. A year later, you said, I feel as if our lives could have been exchanged. It almost feels like luck that I'm the one who came back from Europe and ended up living a normal life, and he didn't.
2: I think it is luck. It's not almost. Who knows exactly what contributes to serious mental illness, why one person has it and one doesn't. We don't really understand that. We know there's a hereditary component, but there's a lot more to it. It is luck. You know, why does one person have uh, a substance issue and one person not. You know, my father struggled with alcoholism. I feel so lucky that I didn't inherit that particular piece of DNA. Obviously, I'm not, you know, (laughs) I'm not some shining example of of perfect mental health. I've struggled with panic attacks and all the rest of it. But basically, I've been pretty mentally stable. That is a gift.
1: You're uh, 58, 59? 59. At 59, how do you wrestle with that idea of luck?
2: I mean, one problem that I have is that I can get into certain states where I feel so crushed and drained and responsible for the fact that there's so much pain in the world and so much injustice everywhere I look that it becomes hard to do anything. I mean, I just feel like I have to fix this. I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility and a kind of Over-empathy. And I say over because what good is it doing? In the end, it's just self-indulgence, really. But I can enter a state of mind where I feel hobbled in the short term by the fact that there's so much unfairness and bad luck out there and just struggle and suffering. And I feel like I have to fix it. And I, of course, can't. (laughs) So I feel that. I feel it about the climate so much. There are moments where I feel like I just have to pick up every piece of litter I see. I cannot let it lie there. I have to leave these spaces cleaner than they were. Well, I guess that is wrangling and wrestling with my own good luck, how to share it, how to fix what I can, how to not be debilitated by the sense of other people's pain that I can't solve how to keep functioning, sort of getting better at what I do and using whatever power or capital I have to try to fix what problems I can while I'm here. I think very explicitly in those terms. And I think, you know, it's my duty.
1: <laughs> I'm, we're making eye contact now. <laughs> we have been the whole time, but I'm thinking about it. trying to sort between uh, what you're saying and what you're thinking.
2: Well, you can't know what I'm thinking. (laughs) But I will tell you, it's what I'm saying. Actually, that's not true. Do you want to know what I'm thinking? Yeah, I do. I'm thinking that this interview is so intense, and I had no idea what I was getting into when I walked into the studio.
1: Is that a bad thing?
2: No, I just feel, I just hope that it's not too revealing of me. It feels like it kind of is, but whatever. You're drawing from the public records, so it's not like you're revealing anything that I haven't revealed.
1: What's the fear?
2: I guess the fear is that I'm not in control of what this ends up sounding like. But I also don't mind it because that's an adventure in and of itself. And I like adventures. I'm appreciating your effort and the result, which is that you've got me talking outside of the usual boundaries of what I'm talking about.
1: Well, that's the goal because so many find your work and love your work and your work serves as a kind of refuge from their day-to-day lives. Your books are highly entertaining, as you often talk about.
2: Well, as I hope.
1: (laughs) Yes, you you talk about and you hope, and they are. And I think the goal of this, now we're getting very meta, is that people understand the person that made the thing that they love. Fair enough. I'll shut
2: up now. Okay.
1: (laughs) This idea that your life with Graham could have been exchanged. Thinking about that trip when you went to Europe but eventually did come back and go to college and sort of move away from that feeling of mania that you felt. Now that he's gone, do you feel like you're living for both him and you?
2: You know, I feel like I've said that and it's a neat concept, but I guess I question it. It's very self-congratulatory in a way. It's like saying, well, I'm now living for both of us. But I'm not. (laughs) He's not here. I really wish he were. Uh, I know he would want the best for me and want me to have a happy life, and he certainly would want that from our mother. But I guess I have questioned that concept because it seems too neat and too self-serving. I guess I've edited it, if you will.
1: What does the edited version look like?
2: I think I will really struggle with my sadness over not just his death which was terrible but honestly his life which was so hard for the rest of my life for sure the truth is there are moments where I feel like I'm just weaker because of all of it you know it hasn't helped me in any way are you kidding like I adored him and I watched him suffer and then he didn't make it I mean that's just a failure there's no way around that there's no, there's no rosy aftermath in me wandering off to the sunset like living for both of us. It's just bad.
1: How do you live with that failure?
2: I mean, maybe it's the same thing as when I was a freshman in college and thought that I would myself not live a normal life. You just keep going. And my relationship to that tragedy of his life changes I think over time. Sometimes I'm surprised that it's, that it's not easier. And sometimes I'm struck by the fact that it feels okay. So it's just another factor to contend with. But I think as we get older, all of us have more and more of these. And I think more and more that the, the real challenge of living a long life, which I really hope to do, is being able to metabolize really serious loss. And I ask myself, you know, can I do that? I'm having a lot of trouble just metabolizing this one loss. We'll see. But I have a feeling that I can.
1: Do you think part of the way that you can is through writing?
2: Without question. it's the. I think it may be the only way that I can, actually. I am looking to find things I haven't seen and give myself that sense of discovery, which is so much what makes writing a joy. Just that feeling of being lifted out of my life into another world, which is, I think, one of those basic human longings. To me, that describes writing. That's what it is like. Not that it's that way every day or it's always so happy, but that possibility of actually passing through a membrane into another world is is what I do it for.
1: As we close, can we go to a passage in Manhattan Beach where I think you describe this breaking through a barrier pretty well?
2: So in Manhattan Beach, Anna, uh, Anna Kerrigan, um, one of my protagonists, is trying to have an opportunity to become a diver at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and she's being given a test but the test is very much rigged against her. She's expected to fail the test because no women dive at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. She's now wearing a 200-pound diving suit that is very painful to have on her body, and she's being presented with a new challenge. Greer appeared in front of the face opening. You can stop walking, he said gently. He looked worried. She supposed her expression must be contorted. Anna raised the object to where she could see it, A rope elaborately knotted. She rearranged her hands in the three-fingered gloves, pinky and ring fingers in one slot, pointer and index in a second, thumbs in the third, and pushed against the knot with all ten fingertips. Through the hot, slightly damp insides of the gloves, her fingers explored its contours, and the pain in her shoulders felt suddenly at a remove. There was an area in every knot that would yield when you pushed on it hard and long enough. Anna closed her eyes, her hands delivering her to a purely tactile realm that seemed to exist outside the rest of life. It was like pushing through a wall to find a hidden chamber just beyond it. She felt the knot's weakness, like the faint, incipient bruise on an apple, and dug her fingers in. Loosening a knot always seemed impossible until it was inevitable. Anna knew this from years of rats' nests and cats' cradles, shoelaces, jumping ropes, slingshots, things children on the block had always brought her to unscramble. The knot made a last, clutching effort to preserve itself, its reluctance to yield making it seem almost alive. Then it surrendered, the cords loose in her hands.
1: That sounds a lot like writing.
2: Actually, to me, that's more like revising because revising is always problem solving, which is what makes it such a pleasure. And I always, you know, you have that feeling that you're moving in the right direction.
1: The line, it was like pushing through a wall to find a hidden chamber just beyond it. Maybe that is editing and revising. In fact, this whole podcast has included a whole lot of editing and revising.
2: True. But that one part, I would say, pushing beyond to a hidden chamber, that's more like writing. And I think that this podcast has had a few of those moments as well, at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa, where am I now? Okay, here we go.
1: <laughs> well, whatever the media may be, I thank you for pushing past those walls again and again, and for sitting with me today. Jennifer Egan, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We did it. Boy, you're going to have your work cut out for you editing that.
1: No, no. It was a
2: long conversation.
1: And that's our show. Special thanks to Katie Monahan, Mia O'Neill, Simon and & Schuster, and of course, Jennifer Egan. You can purchase her new novel, The Candy House, wherever you get your books. If you'd like to learn more about her and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend past conversations with writers like Jhumpa Lahiri, Elizabeth Gilbert, George Saunders, Margaret Atwood, Roxanne Gay, Richard Powers, Michael Lewis, Anne Lamott, Ocean Vuong, Claudia Rankin, and Gloria Steinem. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at TalkEasyPod, as always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaelin Ung, Paulina Suarez, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Marano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Before we go, I uh, just want to say the names of the 10 people who passed away this past weekend in Buffalo. I don't have the language to articulate how I'm feeling or try to capture how any of us are feeling. I, I, I don't have that yet. If you know this show, you know that we're not afraid to have challenging, painful conversations about race in America. We've been having them since I started this show in 2016. We will continue to have them later this summer, and I hope in doing so, continue to honor the lives we lost last weekend. Those lives were Celestine Cheney, Roberta A. Jury, Andre McNeil, Catherine Macy, Margus D. Morrison, Hayward Patterson, Aaron Salter Jr., Geraldine Talley, Ruth Whitfield, and Pearl Young. I'll see you back here next Sunday with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so on.
3: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, You'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobilecom unconventional awards. See you there. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales event, so give your
4: friends something to look at like a BB with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter.